0: chapter 19, verse 28. And I'll ask you please, one last time, as always, to stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. The Gospel of John reads this. In this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Father, this morning we come to you. And our desire, Lord, is simply nothing but you. God, that you would have your way this morning. Lord, my heart is thrilled when we worship you together. And and Lord, you know my heart, Father. You see that. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for your presence here this morning. Lord, I ask that you would uh, touch me this morning to um, preach your word, God, as your messenger. To reveal again this week, God, the depth of your love for us and your desire for us, Lord, and all that you were willing to go through for us. I pray, Lord, this morning our hearts will be moved with gratitude for who you are. And, Lord, that is our heart, Lord, that you alone would be glorified not only in this church but in this city, in this country, Lord. May we be a people, Father, that spark a fire in our community, Lord. Father, this morning, have your way with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've been studying Scriptures now for about ten and a half years. And um, I have spent more hours than I know studying uh, from the beginning to the end. And I must admit that even after ten and a half years, Scripture never ceases to amaze me. I am still as fascinated today with my Savior as I was the first day I met Him. Uh, I am still in awe and amazed at His grace. It never gets old to me. It's Uh, I really do, I've heard of of the new wearing off, but I must confess that after ten and a half years, I'm just as excited today about my relationship with Christ as I was ten and a half years ago. And this morning, as I was studying this particular passage, this thought that... The one who was there, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it tells us that by Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Jesus, who became flesh, and dwelt amongst us, was in the beginning. All things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And I thought about that, and as I studied this particular passage, this thought occurred to me that the One who had the power to speak everything into existence, the same One who at His Word caused the winds to cease and the storm to die down, it's an amazing thought. It wasn't though He spoke and... As time progressed, everything finally cleared out and it looked as if God had answered his prayer. He spoke and immediately the winds obeyed him. How do the winds obey his voice? I don't know. I just simply know they do. How did he speak and create this world? I don't know. I just know that he did. But the thought that not only would he subject himself to the... to to being clothed in flesh, but we see Him here thirsting. The thought that the Maker of heaven and earth, His lips were parched, His tongue was dry. It's just an amazing thought to me that one with this omnipotent power, one with this ability to do anything that He pleased, Finds himself thirsty here. The cross thus far has had almost all of the prophecies spoken about it come to pass. The prophetic foreview of what would take place at this event is staggering. And as I share much of it today, I must confess that I do find it stunning to me, the fools who will dismiss the Word of God as fairy tales, as books of men, when we see the reality of the finger of God in all of it. Plainly told, centuries before all this come to pass, in Psalm 41 we learned that he would be betrayed by a familiar friend. In Psalm verse chapter 31 and verse 11, we learn that he would be forsaken by his own disciples as they were offended at him. In Psalm 35, that he would be falsely accused. In Isaiah chapter 53, that he would be silent before his accusers. That he would be proven guiltless in verse 9 of the same chapter. And that he would be numbered with transgressors also in Isaiah 53. That he would be crucified in Psalm 22 verse 16. In Psalm 109, we're told that he would be mocked by the spectators, that he would be taunted of his non-deliverance in Psalm chapter 22. And in Psalm 22 and 18, we're told that his garments would be gambled for. We're told that he would pray for his enemies in Isaiah 53, that he would be forsaken by God in Psalm 22. And in Psalm 69, that he would thirst. Is amazing. If God wanted us to know what would take place, that we might identify His Son. He has gone out of His way. He has given us every reason to know this is Him. He has told us hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies saying, this is what will take place with the Savior. And we see in a marvelous perfection way each and every one come to pass exactly, not sort of like, not possibly this is what the scripture was referencing, but exactly as God had told us centuries before. It's amazing to me the accuracy of the scriptures. Can I tell you this morning, those of us that believe on the Word of God, we believe on a firm foundation. It is the very Word of God. It is, the, it is the map that God has given us that we can trust and live our lives by. And His finger is on every bit of it. The Bible tells us the Scriptures are God-breathed. And in Psalm 69, we saw that He would thirst. We also see this morning Christ and His humanity. This is a very difficult, um, it's almost as difficult as the Trinity. Trying to explain the Trinity is a difficult thing to explain. At the bottom, at the end of the day, it simply requires faith. But we see that Jesus, who is fully God, was also fully man. It's important to understand that He was not a divine man, but He was a man. And He was not a human God. He was God. He was the God-Man. When Jesus took on the form of an infant and came into this world to be born of a virgin, He did not cease to be all that He was previously. But He took upon Himself something that He had not before. And that is perfect humanity. He was both God and man. This is important. As we'll see at the end of our study this morning. He had to be God, but he also had to be man. That he might identify with us. In the prophecies before his coming. Sometimes He was represented as divine and other times He was represented as human. We see the divine side of the Savior in Isaiah chapter 4 when He was called the branch of the Lord. He was the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the Father of ages. The Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. He was the ruler in Israel whose goings forth had been from the days of eternity in Micah chapter 5. Yet, on the other hand, we see that he was the woman's seed in Genesis chapter 3. That he was a prophet likened unto Moses. That he would be of the descendants of David. That he was Jehovah's servant. That he was a man of sorrows. And in the New Testament, we see both his divine nature and his nature as man in perfect harmony. In the New Testament, here on earth, Jesus gave full proof of His deity. He spoke with divine wisdom. He acted in divine holiness. He exhibited divine power. He also displayed divine love. He read men's minds. He moved their hearts. All of nature was subject to Him. As we already discussed, He caused the winds to cease and the storm to be calm. He made diseases flee. He made the devil leave him. Dead were raised to life. And he could truly say, He that has seen me has seen the Father. He was both. And we see here as he thirsts, Christ and his humanity. To me, it's interesting the progression, and I, I don't know that I've got it completely right, but I'll just share with you in my mind as I've been studying this now for several months, this particular sermon series, that we see Jesus, the first thing He says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. And then the second thing that He says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And then third, we see him, as he's hanging there, take care of his mother and speak to John and instate him into taking care of his mother. The fourth thing, we see him cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I want you to see, in my mind, I see as the the hours are progressing and as the day has gone by and as he is getting closer and closer to his last breath. We see the man side of Christ that identifies with us, probably and possibly, at no other time except His birth, more closely linked to us, our feelings and our emotions. We know that He hung on the cross and that from basically from 9 o'clock until noon there was three hours of darkness and then from, from, from noon until three, as He is hanging there, and the sun is beating down on Him. He simply cries out, I thirst. And we see Him in His humanity. A God that can identify with us. A God that understands our pains, our sufferings, our desires, our longings. And a God that was willing to go through ultimate self-denial, ultimate pain, that He might have a relationship with us. In our text this morning, for me, the most important part of verse 28. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, That the scripture might be fulfilled. If you underline in your Bible, underline that the scripture might be fulfilled. The Bible tells us why he said, I thirst. He was thirsty. And his lips were parched and his tongue was dry, but this is not why he spoke, I thirst. The Bible tells us why he spoke the words, I thirst. That the scripture might be fulfilled. What an amazing thought. Even in the last moments of his life, his primary concern is that the Word of God might stand and that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. In the 69th Psalm, in verse 21, it was prophesied, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. In the same psalm, we're told that he would sink into the deep mire in verse two; that he'd be hated without a cause in verse four; that he would be that he would, had borne the reproach and shame in verse seven; that he would become a stranger unto his brethren in verse eight; that he would become a proverb to his rilers and a song to drunkards in verses eleven to twelve. We're told that he would cry out to God in his distress in verse seventeen through twenty. All of these things had come to pass. And now there remained nothing more but the offering of a drink. Jesus knowing that all things were accomplished. These things had come to pass. These things had taken place. There was yet one more in verse 21. The Word was at His foremost thought in life and even at the brink of death. I want to pause for a moment this morning and just preach about the Word. If there's one area that the church bluffs in better than any other area, it is our care and our stance for the Word of God. There's few things that will cause a Christian to stand up and fight, if you will, like an argument against the Bible. But there's almost nothing that can get the Christian to pick it up and read it. We bluff. Dr. David Jeremiah in his study on pastors found an incredibly embarrassing statistic about our nation. And that being that seven out of ten pastors... Do not read the Bible except in sermon preparation. That's embarrassing. But I know this. If that is a statistic among pastors, it is certainly worse amongst non-pastors. Now this morning, I want us to stop and think together about our text. In His last dying breath, Jesus' mind is on Psalm chapter 69. Now, He was thirsty. and He was going to die. But yet, He spoke out, I thirst, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus stood on the Word of God. He was the Word of God made flesh. His life was about the Word of God. And in His death, His thoughts were about the Word of God. There is, it, there, there is no way this morning, in a few short moments, that I can properly paint the picture for you of how important the Word of God is to us. Because ultimately, it's the only thing that we have. You know, I'm going to get some things wrong sometimes. So are you. So is the preacher on television. So is the preacher on the radio. We cannot simply trust everything that, we're, that we hear. We hear. You need to be in the Word of God. You need to know what the Word of God says. It is here and here alone that we find the words of life. And we need to place a supreme importance on knowing the Word and being in the Word. Can I tell you personally that in my life I have found that when... There's two things in my life I've found that when I seem to to be doing a poor job at, the rest of my life seems to be not so well either. I'm more stressed out. I'm finding that I'm worrying a whole lot more. I have a whole lot less trust. And those two things are when I'm not reading and praying. And it is amazing to me that while I might be struggling, for example, with a financial problem, And, 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 and this thing seems to consume my day and my time, and I'm thinking, God, how are you going to meet this need? How are you going to take care of this? What's going to happen if, 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 if? What if this? What if that? That I can open up the Word of God, and as I read the Word of God, I might not be reading anything about finances, but I am reading about a faithful God who has always been there for those whom He loves, and as I'm reading, and I'm seeing how God has taken care of them in the past, and I'm reminded of how He's taken care of me, all of a sudden my worries and my fears and my doubts seem to fade into the background as I'm reminded that my God is God. He is the King of all kings. He is with me and He has never forsaken me. There is something healthy about simply getting into the Word. If you as a child of God would learn how to make getting into the Word, just five minutes of your day would change your life every day. And then maybe 10, then maybe 15, you'll find you have a hard time putting it down. We must take supreme importance on the Word. It is the way that God has chosen from His realm of heaven, from the realm of what is invisible. It is the way He has chosen to reveal Himself to us. Through His Word. We need a return to the Word. We need people who will do more than simply cry about they're taking the Bible out of this or stand up for it's the Bible, it's the Bible, it's the Bible. Have you ever got one of those uh, emails that says if you really love God, go forward this and it has something to do about whether you know the Bible and then all of a sudden you decide, well, I guess I'm not going to love God today and just not forward it. I mean, it's amazing the things we'll do to act like we stand for the Word of God, but we won't get into it. This morning I say that uh, not in a condescending way. I don't, want to, I don't want to come across that way this morning, but I do want to lift up the importance of the Word of God. If Christians would learn to go there every time that things seem to fall apart instead of to the wrong advice and to the wrong people, it'd be amazing how much stronger they would stand. And like I said, a lot of people don't get into the Word because they think, well, I don't know, where am I going to find something that deals with this? Or It doesn't matter. Just open it up. And you will see a God that loves you and that reveals Himself to you. Our Savior. Breathing is one of His last breaths. His mind runs to the Word of God. It was His foremost thought even at the brink of death. I asked this morning, is this holy book the final court of appeal with you? Are you really obeying it? Do you see it as simply a guidebook For the most part, if you follow it, it'll help you be a good person. Or do you see it as Christ did, who in his last moments of his life, that the scripture might be fulfilled, speaks, I thirst. Concerned about obeying the word of God. Is it really the final rule in your life? Most of us, myself included, most of us find it difficult to obey. But there is nothing more important as a Christian than learning to simply trust and obey God. His Word is not this just general list of things that you should learn as principles and kind of help guide your life. You need to obey the Word of God. And this morning, let me ask it in in, in this this way. When it comes down to making your decisions, whether they're business decisions, life decisions, who you're going to date decisions, what you're going to, how you're going to give decisions, what you're going to do with your time, when it comes down to making your decisions, is the Word of God the final authority in your life, or is it just one of many voices that you consider? It must be the final authority. God gives us His Word and He gives us His laws and He gives us His rules and He gives us His commandments to keep us safe. It is because He loves us. But friends, you must learn that even when you don't understand and even when it doesn't make sense to you, you must obey God. You must know His Word. You must obey it. child of God this morning... If you would say of your own life and of your own heart that it seems like one day you're wanting to serve God and then the other day you're wanting to go this direction and you're pulled this way and you're pulled that way and and you feel like there's two parts of you and it's just this battle that never ends. I want to ask you two questions. And I'll bet you'll find the answer to your problem is in your commitment to the Word of God. Question number one, when you're going the wrong direction and when you're feeling pulled in the wrong way, how much time are you really spending in the Word of God each day? You'll find it's either very little or zero. And question number two, when you're being pulled in different directions, how often is the Word of God your final authority? And here's the way we feel. Though it's an incorrect thought, here's the way we feel. Well, it's my life. You know, I can do what I want. Uh, I'm a big person. I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. I'm going to go about my own way and then later I'll do this or that. It's my life. I can do what I want with my life, Pastor. This morning, can I correct you in a loving way? No, it's not your life. If you are a child of God, the Word of God says your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. It's not your life. You belong to God. And we must learn to trust and obey no matter the cost. And you'll find that if you it, it sounds so simple, but it is that simple. If you will stay in the Word of God, believe the Word of God, trust and obey Him at all times, you'll find you'll keep moving down the road. You'll keep going where God wants you to go and less and less and less will the pull of this world and everything that tries to strip you away from God, it will have less and less and less effect on your life. We need to return to the Word of God. Those are the two things that I believe as a pastor, if I could get people to do that would change their life forever. Be in the Word of God, trusting and obeying it, and pray. Those two things, if you will make them a discipline of your life every day, will steer you in the right direction. We also see in His desire that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Our Lord's submission to the Father's will which we see as he came and was clothed in flesh, which we see when he had to be about his father's business at the age of 12, which we see in his ministry as he was preaching the Word, healing the sick. But we also see in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Lord, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Nonetheless, your will be done and not mine. And here, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. It's interesting that our Lord never once performed a miracle for His own benefit or comfort. You remember Matthew chapter 4 when Satan came and tried to get him to use his power for his own purposes? And Jesus responded back, it is written. We don't find the Lord performing miracles for His own benefit or comfort. And in Psalm 69, it was the expressed will of God that he should thirst. Our Lord had a passion and a delight for the Father's will even when it was through suffering. Even when it was through suffering. Most of us are all for the will of God when it's about blessings And God's favor and abundance and joy and peace. But what if? And what happens when the will of God is the cross? Do you delight in His will then? Do you not know, friend, that His will is always best? There is a supreme reason. His ways are higher than our ways. We do not always understand God why. And I would even say this. As our Savior, the sinless man, was not afraid to ask, Lord, if there's any other way. It's not necessarily wrong for us to ask, God, is there another way? But we must be willing to accept the will of the Father and trust Him that, Lord, as I follow You through the pain and through the suffering and through the difficulty and through the stage in my life, as I follow You and I'm faithful to You and I take each step as You have asked me to take, You, God, You will make a way. You will take care of it because Your ways are higher than my ways. Our Savior showed us the perfect example Of what it meant to delight in the will of the Father. Sometimes my will lines up with God's will. Not always. And if we're honest, my will is typically selfish about me. And I thank God that God does bless. I have been blessed beyond measure in ten and a half years of knowing Him. But I also know what it is for God to say, I'm calling you into a difficult period. I'm calling you into somewhere hard. I'm calling you into a place where you're going to have to trust Me. Do you delight in the will of the Father this morning? Do you delight in His ways? And are you willing to follow Him full-heartedly, even when it involves suffering or thirst. We also see, though, that our Lord can sympathize with us in our suffering. The question, why should suffering be necessary in a world that is governed by God? It's a very, very difficult question to answer. After searching the world over, even here in the most prosperous country of the world, to all the other nations, to some of the poorest nations in the world like Moldova and Haiti, one thing we can see constant is that there is suffering and pain everywhere. And it can cause one to ask, does God not see? Does God not see the pain that I'm going through? Does God not hear our cries? It's a very, very, very difficult question. But it is a real one. That in one form or another, we have all wondered at certain times in our lives, as we have been through difficult times, God, do you not hear? Some of us have been through tragic and terrible circumstances in our life. And we have said, where was God then? This morning, I don't have the time, nor is it the topic of our sermon, to search the depths of that answer. But what I can tell you is that in some ways, the cross provides sufficient enough response. It does not completely answer the question concerning suffering. But what we do see is this, is that our God was willing to go through it too. And He was touched by it. And He does see it. And He does hear it. And He does feel it. We really need to look no further than the cross to see He knows. He knows all about it. He knows what it is to be forsaken by those whom He loves. He knows what it is to be falsely accused and even punished falsely. He knows what it is to be hurt, stricken, mocked, ridiculed, to thirst. He knows what it is to be alone. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to die. And through that, it is sufficient enough response for me to know. God does see. This morning, there are some of you who have been through horrific pains and trials that I could in no way relate to. But you need to know that God was willing to become made man that He might relate with you. He does know. And you might feel like Nobody else could ever fully understand my pain. Nobody else could ever speak anything to me of value. Nobody else could ever say anything that would deal with this situation in my life. None of us here this morning might be able to, but there is one who can. And He suffered that you and I could relate to Him. We see that He took our position. We are the ones who should have thirsted. And in some ways, we see again as our representative, as the one who hung and took our penalty, our payment on his shoulders, the sins of the world, and nailed them to the tree, that we are the ones who thirst. It is that unquenchable thirst that makes that gives us understanding to this wild pursuit of wealth in our culture. There's some that try to quench that thirst through relationships, girlfriends, boyfriends. We see this, all of us really chasing the same thing before we come to the One who gives us the water of which we'll never thirst again. But until we find Him, all of us are in some relentless, never-ending pursuit of satisfying the thirst of our soul. Some men chase wealth. Some fame, some fortune. Some through drugs and alcohol. There are those who have searched the world over and have visited every continent on the face of earth in the the search of understanding things. And and, and we see the scientific community in this never-ending search for uh, uh, knowledge and understanding. And and we see this this people digging into the the teachings of old and and the sayings and the writings of all these philosophers in this never-ending pursuit to quench a thirst. Of which Jesus said in John chapter 4 and verse 12. That of this water you will thirst again. Once you have been wealthy. You'll find you're still thirsty. And you'll turn somewhere else to quench the thirst. If you got into the to a marriage thinking that it would. Quench your thirst. You have found by this time, if you have not turned to the Lord, you're still thirsty. The natural man finds that after searching the world over and over again, he is still thirsty. And we thirst. Because there's a void in the heart of man. A brokenness from the fall. A distance from the One who we were created by and for. And it is that reconciliation with God. It is that reconciliation with the Lover of our souls. It is that being born again and made whole through the power of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit of God. It is that being born again and that alone that can quench the thirst within. And Jesus said, But if you drink of the water I give you, you will never thirst again. There is only one who can cause you to never thirst, and that is Jesus. This morning I want to ask you, friend, have you really turned to Him? Are you chasing things in this world to try to quench a thirst that only He can quench? Are you doing it through friendships, relationships, work, wealth, whatever it may be? Center friend, this morning I want to encourage you to come to Christ. In Psalm 42 we learn that it is our souls that thirst for God. And finally this morning, I want to submit that we also see the principle of Fellowship. In the Word of God, we see the idea of thirsting, especially in John chapter 4, as a spiritual principle. In Psalm 42, as the deer panteth for the water, O Lord, so my soul panteth after Thee. And then in verse 2 of the same psalm, we're told, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. Thirst is more than the longing for water. It is a spiritual need. And in John chapter 4, Jesus says, in verse 34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me and to finish His work. Can I tell you in a, in a nutshell, the reason God sent His Son was that you and I might be reconciled to God. That's the reason that He could have a relationship with us. While it is necessary to trust and obey because our minds do not understand the things of God, God desires more than a master and slave relationship. And there are some of you here this morning who have not fully surrendered to God. You have not given your all. You have not turned to Him with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul. Because somewhere deep inside you think it's about a master and slave relationship. But God desires to have an intimate personal relationship with you. He loves you Beyond what you and I can even understand love is. With a perfect, unchanging and undying love. And His ultimate reason for coming. The ultimate reason was simply so that we can have a relationship with Him. It's an amazing thought. This is what heaven will be. There will be an end to these troubles. There will be. And there will be no more suffering. And there will be no more pain. And as they talked this morning in Sunday school, even the subconscious parts of us that are unclean, all of us, we will be made whole. And we will be completely whole. And we will love Him perfectly. And we will be in a relationship with Him. This is why He came. He went to see the woman at the well. John chapter 4. And... He told her to get him a drink. It's interesting, if you read the story, neither one of them actually got water. They were both at the well, but neither one of them ever drew any water from the well. She received the living water. And as I read to you in the context of this very same story, John chapter 4, Jesus said, My need is to do the will of my Father, the one who sent me. And I want to submit to you this morning that nothing thrills the heart of God. And nothing brings joy to Him like our response to Him when we say yes. And we say, Lord, I look at all that You have done for me. I look at the work of the cross I look at how far you were willing to go that you could have a relationship with me and I say, yes. You are God. And I will have a relationship with you. And I will trust your word. And I will be in your word. And I will know you. And I will live for you. And I will walk for you. And I will walk by you. Ultimately, that's what God wants from you this morning is a relationship how often do we get it turned around and we allow the very subtle uh, voice of the enemy trying to see our God as this just relentless master who has these unrealistic and unreasonable expectations and we find ourselves living in guilt and condemnation thinking we could never live up as a slave to the demands of a ruthless master. He thirsts this morning for a relationship with us. That picture is not God. The God that we serve is a God who is willing to come and pay my price for me. And when I look at all that He's done, I can then say, He certainly deserves to be my King. And when I don't understand he will be my king, and I will trust, and I will obey, and his word will be my final authority. Two questions, and I'm done this morning. And I'll ask Brother Jim, is he in here? Yes, if you will to get that prepared. Uh, Kelly and Andrea are going to sing a couple special songs for us this morning as our service concludes. I want to ask two questions. First of all, to the Christian. Can I tell you that for me in the study of this particular um, sermon series, that I have been overwhelmed at times as I've looked at God's love for me. But I have been reminded of what He was willing to do, that He could have a relationship with me. As I have examined what I would call the horror of the cross. The pain that He suffered. Everything that was unjust about it. As I have examined it, I've been reminded He did it for me. And I've been thankful to know Him and to be in a relationship with Him. To think that He would go through all of it just so I could know Him. And I began to see Him in a more personal way. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not saved. Can I plead with you this morning? Run to the river of life. Run to Him. He alone can quench your thirst. He alone is the answer to everything you've been looking for. And you will spend your life in the relentless pursuit of nothing until you turn to Him. And He desires a whole lot more than the master-slave relationship. He loves you and He desires to have an intimate personal relationship with you. That's why He came. This morning, do you know Him? This morning, have you really surrendered to Him? I want to plead with you to come. Father, this morning, I do ask God that you would move on our hearts. And God, it is impossible for us, though we have spent five weeks... Studying the cross, Lord, it's impossible for us to fully grip all that you have done for us.